Let's pray together. Father, this morning we bow once again before you, offering this time to you, knowing that without you we understand nothing of you, and so we ask that you would superintend our time, cause us to understand your word, what it means by what it says, that we might know you more, understand the very redemption that you have given to us, and that we might be better equipped to not only live for you obediently, but to proclaim this great news to others. This is our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be back this morning. Take your Bibles with me and turn in them to our study of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I trust you have been finding great joy in the embracing of the truth that we have discovered together here in Romans chapter 9 throughout the whole book, but particularly here in Romans chapter 9. I was telling somebody this week, you know, I I, I loved Romans chapter 8, and previous to that, I was loving what we were studying, but now I'm in Romans chapter 9. I really love Romans chapter 9. I'm sure that's going to happen when I get to Romans chapter 10, and when we get to Romans chapter 11, and when we get to Romans chapter 12, our eyes are just going to bust out of our heads with what God says there and how we are to respond to what we know about God. So this has just been a wonderful study. There have been many of you who have come and commented to me about the things that God is impressing upon your own understanding as you've been studying through this text with us. And for that, I am I'm eternally grateful to God. I mean, it's such a joy that, to see God's people embracing God for who God is and the truth that He gives us. It's just a wonderful thing. So without Him and without His illuminating work upon each and every one of us who believe, we would just remain confused. We would be humanly frustrated with all that we are hearing, but God has been gracious to us. He has been good to us, and for that we can all say a collective thank you to God, can't we? Amen. Now, I want to begin our time this morning by reading once again the portion of Scripture that we've spent our time in over the last several weeks, and that is verses 14 to 29. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. I had thought originally I should just read this whole chapter because it wouldn't hurt to be a reminder to us, but I, I'm not going to do that. I just want to start in, in verse 14. The Apostle Paul, speaking, obviously says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I caused you to stand, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And so you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so in order that He might make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And that shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity, 
we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Sobering text. Somewhat confusing text to the human mind. And last Lord's Day, we began with being reminded of the words of Isaiah the prophet as God was speaking to Israel. Isaiah 55, I've said it often in our study. I'll say it again in our study. I'm going to say it right now in this study. God says to Israel, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. The truth and the reality of that statement ought to be ringing in our ears. It ought to particularly be ringing on our ears as we think through this text again this morning because we are returning specifically to verses 22 and following, which begin with the words, what if God? The implication from those very words is that far too often as created beings, we think of the ways that God operates in terms and in actions that would describe how we think and how we operate in our lives. In other words, far too often we put God on our level. And we say about God that, God, you must be wrong because A, B, C, or D. Instead of us embracing God on His level, we put God on our level, and that is actually what is behind the question that we began with in this section in verse 19. You'll say to me then, why does He still find fault? Who resists His will? It is a question with a voice of contempt as its underlying tone. Oh, really, God, if that's what you do, then why is it do you find fault with people? Why is it, really, that you judge anybody? It is asked as if to say, how dare God act that way? How dare you, God, act the way you're acting? It's not right for you to save only some of humanity. That is not how we act. It's not how we here in humanity love people. We heard last Lord's Day the first part of Paul's answer to that question. Verses 20 and 21, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? In other words, there is a relationship between God and man. There is a relationship between the creature and the creator. God is holy. God is the only sovereign one. And man is the clay. Man is the depraved one. God is righteous. Man is not. Let us not forget that. Let us not forget what we learned last Lord's Day that Paul is not speaking here in verse 20 and 21 about creation. When it speaks about God making one vessel for honor and another for common use, he's not talking about creation as if God is creating man as a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. This is not creation at all. This is formation. God has already created. God is now taking the created thing, you and I. God is taking us in our current state, our completely depraved, completely guilty because of sin, completely guilty before God, our completely deserving of all of the wrath of God's state. And God is taking some of those dishonorable things and He is fashioning them into honorable. That is the reality that Paul is dealing with there. This is not creation. This is God fashioning. And this is very important for us to understand the reality and the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility before God. 
which is the reality of the question, why does God still find fault? Who resists His will? How can man really be responsible if God is a sovereign God who is the one who saves? If you start at a point other than with humanity in their depravity, if you start at the point where mankind in some kind of way has a neutral zone before God, he is not corrupt because of his own sin, then you will never understand God's sovereign choice to save. If you're still struggling with the reality of God's sovereignty to save and you can do nothing to do that, then you need to go back and really look at the reality of your depravity. This is where you come when you understand who you are before God as a, vessel, as a, a lump of fallenness. And God has no responsibility, no obligation to fashion you into anything. When you understand that, you begin to get an understanding of the sovereignty of God to save and man's responsibility before God. Man is not neutral. Therefore, God must fashion him into a place of honor or he would never get to a place of honor. God must fashion him. Salvation equals honor. So that is what is meant here in verses 20 and 21 by the metaphor being used of the potter and the clay. The clay is fallen humanity. And Paul is helping us to understand that God has the right to do as he will with it. The clay all deserve to be thrown down to hell itself. But God has chosen to save some. God has chosen to make some vessels for honor. And the rest are fashioned as vessels for dishonor. And therefore, we can rightly conclude when we understand that, we can rightly come to the understanding in our minds, why should God not have the right? We can rightly ask that. Why should God not have that right? He is God, and we are guilty before Him. Should not then it be right for God to be able to do that? Well, that should be enough for us. Paul doesn't stop there. Paul gives further explanation and answer to the question in verse 19. Notice that verses 22 through 23 show us something more. Notice what it says. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. We could stop right there. In other words, not only does God have the right to do what he does in verses 20 and 21, not only does God have the right to do that, but now here we get the reason that he does it. Not only does God have the right to do it, but now here Paul gives us the reason why God does it, why God acts the way He does, why God has chosen to do the very reality of redemption the way He has done it, why He hardens some and has mercy on some. Remember, God is not obligated to give us a reason. As creatures, we ought to just fall in line with God having the right to do that. He's the creator. He can do with his creation what he wills. And yet here, God condescends to us and he gives us the reason. And in our English language, it's translated in the form of a question. But in the original language, it's not a question at all. It's a statement it's a conditional statement that doesn't have the conclusion. You understand what a conditional statement is? A conditional statement is usually an if this is true, then this is also true. That's a condition. If A, then C. Right? If this is true, then this also is true. But here, it starts with the if, but there's no stated conclusion. There's no stated then part of the statement. It's a condition, but it's not 
stated as the conclusion. So why do I bring all that up? Why do I say that as we're, we're beginning here in verse 22? Simply to say that while the then is not stated, it is implied. The then is implied. You say, what do you mean? Well, what Paul wants us to understand by putting it in these words is this. If God has done this, referring back to verses 20 and 21, if God has done this, if God is the one who has even taken the clay at all and and used the clay in all of its fallenness, if God has done that, and the implication is the response to the condition, the implication is then what can we say against it? That's the idea. If God did this, then what can we say against all that? If God has acted in this way, then there's nothing man can say against it. So what's the condition? What's the condition? Well, it's listed right there for us in verse 22. If God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. You can stop there because right here is an over... It's an overall statement, right? The reason that God's fashioning of some for honor and others for dishonor, the reason is because everything that God does tells us something about Him, number one, and two, everything that God does displays His glory. The reason that God fashion some for honor and some for dishonor is because everything that God does says something about him and everything that God does displays his glory. This is very important for us to remember as we think about God and especially as we think about his sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility. In all of it, God is showing something about himself And he is displaying in all of it his glory. So first, let's just take that first one. Everything that God does tells us something about him. Notice verse 22 again. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, right there in verse 22, we get a glimpse into the manifestation of God's wrath. We heard about God's wrath already back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all men because of their ungodliness, right? Their continual rejection of the Creator. And one of the ways that God is manifesting His wrath or the power of His wrath and the, the, the non-defensibleness of man to, to continue to to reject him is the reality that he is enduring them with patience. He is enduring them with patience. If God, this is the idea behind the statement, if God, having a deep and strong desire to show his wrath, in other words, God has to show his wrath, uh, that's the actual intent of the words here. In other words, God must show his wrath. Why? Because he's God. Because he's God. This is the very part of his very being. Because he is absolutely holy in every way. Because of his righteousness and because of his, out of his righteousness is his justice. Being who he is, God must hate sin. He must hate sin. He cannot, because of who he is, just simply overlook sin. No sin will go unpunished. It's an impossibility with God because of who he is. And that is simply to say that God and sin are antithetical. They are directly opposed and directly opposites, and they will always go against each other. They cannot And they will never mix. And therefore God, with all of his being, must punish sin. 
And in God punishing sin, all of those qualities of his character are seen. His righteousness is seen. His holiness is seen. His hatred of sin is seen. His omniscience and omnipresence and and omnipotence are seen. In other words, when God punishes sin, and by punishing sin, that means judgment on the sinner. That's what we mean. Okay, when God punishes sin, it's not just this concept in this big ethereal thing. Yes, humanity is all sinful, so we could kind of see it in our minds that way. But when we when we talk about God punishing sin, we're talking about individuals. We're talking not talking about okay, collectively we all come together and there's big mold of sinfulness. That's true. But what we're talking about here, when God demonstrates His wrath against sin, He's He's wrathful against sinners. Sinner. The scriptures tell us God is angry with the sinner every day. Why? Because he's holy. Because he's holy. And when he judges sin, when he punishes sin, when his wrath is, is carried out upon sin, we know his righteousness. We see his righteousness. We saw this a few weeks ago as we looked at the life of Pharaoh. Back in Exodus, as God was punishing Egypt, all of Egypt, for their individual rejection of God and for Pharaoh's personal rejection of God over the nation. The wrath of God was being clearly seen. You can read it. There are ten things that happened to Israel in, in miraculous ways at the hand of Moses and Aaron because God had chosen them to go and, and Pharaoh is devastated by it, even though he keeps rejecting God. And all the people of Egypt and all the people of Israel knew that God was holy, and they knew that God was righteous in his punishment. Turn for a moment over to Luke chapter 13. <clears throat> Luke chapter 13. Interesting Interesting happening in Luke's gospel. Jesus, of course, is preaching and he's calling people to repent. And he's telling them that Christ divides men, right? Listen, there's going to be, it's all about Christ and, and you're going to even have divisions in your family. You're going to have divisions in your, your wherever you are. There's going to be divisions in a household Two against two, two against three in verse 52 of the, of the previous chapter. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Why? Not because there's this, this angst of personality. That happens. That's sinful. But because of Christ. People stand for Christ, and that separates people. And so he's calling people to repent. Turn to him. Chapter 13 says, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans. And apparently, something happened with the Galileans and Pilate, who was over the, over the period of time, Pilate takes their blood and mingles it with the sacrifices, to, to, to defile the sacrifices, to, to kind of say to the Jews, listen, you're nothing, I'm, and he mixes the blood with the sacrifices and it becomes an abomination and so they're coming to Jesus saying look that, that happened I mean they're they're worse than we are that's that's kind of the idea and he answers and he says to them do you suppose that these Galileans well you're the Jews do you suppose these Gentile Galileans these people from the north whoever were greater sinners than all do you suppose even you are greater sinners than the Galileans because they suffered this fate? He says, no, I tell you that unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. Jesus says, listen, you're no better than anybody else. You're all sinners alike. You're no better than anybody else. The reason they died is because of their sin, not because somebody was wicked against them. That may be the hand at which I allowed it to happen. But listen, they died because they were sinners. And unless you repent, you're going to die the same fate. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and were killed, 
You know, we don't have history of that event. We don't know what took place, but awfully, uh, but something happened there. The tower fell down. Maybe there was an earthquake. Something happened, and these 18 people died. And people were saying, oh, these poor people. I can't believe they died. Oh, uh, how, what a shame, these poor, innocent people. Jesus, God himself, says, do you think, how uncompassionate. Do you think, do you suppose that they were worse culprits than all of you, all the men who live in Jerusalem? You think because they died, although maybe they did something wrong in their life, I tell you what, brother, I tell you what, no, unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. Everything God does is a lesson about God. We cannot think that just because we are the creature that God is obligated to save us or that we're better than some other creature. What we all deserve is wrath. That's what we must remember. That's what we must get out of this. That's what we must see out of John or Luke chapter 13. We all deserve wrath. No one is better than anybody else. If God must show his wrath against sin because of who God is, because God is holy and because God is righteous, then when he punishes sinners or when he endures with much patience vessels destined for wrath, then God is showing us something about himself and he's showing us his righteousness. Herod or or Pharaoh... I should have destroyed you long ago. You deserve destruction. But, but, just like verse 17 says, for this very purpose I set you up. For this very purpose I've let you remain. For this very purpose I've endured you with much patience, Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power in you. To show everybody, to show the entire world, to show the entire earth that I am God. That my power be known. You need to know who I am. What better way for me to show it than in my patience toward vessels of destruction? In other words, God punishes so that his righteous wrath might be known. And God is showing patience to some so that his righteousness would be shown and, notice verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Diamonds shine bright on a black backdrop, don't they? That's how a jeweler sells you the most expensive diamond, guys. He pulls out his little black belt, lays it there on the counter, and lays that ring on there so that you can see how bright it shines, and you can get caught up in all that beauty of that little stone. You notice what Paul says here? Paul says in verse 22, I want to make that God, what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath, he's willing to do that, we deserve it. Willing to demonstrate and make his power known in that way. Instead, instead, because this shows us even more of who he is, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That word prepared is an important word. It's a very important word. Sadly and wrongly, many have said that it is God who has prepared them. Or by our human thinking, it is God who has created them for destruction. That's how many will say what this verse means. And therefore they say, how can a man be responsible for himself in that way if that's the case? That God created him that way. Right? There's a lot of people using that for all kinds of bizarre thinking. Right? We see it in our country today. I was born this way. Right? If that was the case, then there would be some accuracy to claiming some kind of unrighteousness was God, wouldn't there? If that was the case, then surely this statement would be true. Well, then why does God hold me responsible? He created me this way. 
But that is not the case, and that is not what this word means, because the text here does not tell us that it was God who prepared them for this. It simply says that they have been prepared for destruction. That's all it says. What if God allowed, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, and it's a perfect participle there, In other words, the perfect has a a state of being that's taken place and has continuing results. These have been prepared for the destruction, but it doesn't tell us who did the preparing. They've been prepared for this. It simply tells us that, but it doesn't tell us who did the preparing. So why is that important for us to know and why is that important for us to think about? Because you notice as you read your text in verse 23, it reads, And he did so in order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now there we have something of significance that says, Who did the preparing? In other words, God has not prepared the vessels of wrath for destruction, but he has prepared the vessels of mercy for glory. And that understanding keeps us in line with all that Paul has been teaching up to this point. Our, our, our exposition of this text has been accurate up to this point. All that God created was very what? Good, Genesis 1.31. All that God created wasn't just good, it was very good, and He did not create a sinner. God did not create a lump of fallen humanity. What he created was very good, and it was man. It was us who prepared ourselves for destruction. How? By disobeying God from the heart. So man prepared himself for destruction from the fall. Remember back in the first chapters of this very study, we were in Adam when he sinned, and all of us, by the way, have sinned in the same way. Some people say, well, that wasn't fair. I was in Adam, and why does God hold me accountable for Adam's sin? Well, God, that's, that's original sin, but why are you still sinning then? Why do you go on making your own sinfulness? Why do you go on doing your own sinful thing? If you're so good, and if that's not fair, then don't sin anymore. No human can do that, because we're sinners. And so we cannot go away with the idea that God is the one who prepares us for destruction. He is not. We did it. That's our responsibility. And even though we are all prepared for destruction, and even though God could have carried out that punishment on each and every one of us immediately, And on all of us and on any of us, immediately, it says that he endured with great patience. He endured with great patience. Now think for a moment back to Pharaoh. Our study a couple weeks ago, think for a moment about him again. God knew that Pharaoh would not listen. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knew that Pharaoh would not listen. In fact, he told Moses that very thing. Go to Pharaoh, he's not going to listen. And yet God patiently endures Pharaoh. He endures his own sin. He endures the sin of the nation of Egypt in his own time. He endures their rejection. And in that endurance, God continues to send Moses and continues to send Aaron with him to plead with Pharaoh to believe in God. Over and over and over again, Pharaoh was rejecting God and God is sending out of his patience and out of his kindness someone to go tell him about God. And Pharaoh is continuing to reject God. I don't want to follow God. I'm not going to do what God says. I'm not going to do it. Pharaoh continues in his sin, and God finally does what? See you later, Pharaoh. The day of grace is over. That, beloved, tells us just how God deals with the whole of fallen humanity. God sends his word out to a sinful people. 
over and 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 over again. And man resists, 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 resists. And so the question for us is not, why does God still find fault? The question for us is, why does God put up with any human at all? Why does God put up with any of us? Why does God tolerate the godless world that it is? Why does God tolerate this world in which we belong? The answer is verse 23. He did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. The reason that God endures the sinfulness of the world around us, the answer is because God is rich in mercy. And his mercy is seen in blazing light. Blazing light for what it truly is through his enduring patience. There's vessels of wrath like you and I. Isn't that exactly what Peter was teaching in 2 Peter? Go to 2 Peter for a moment. Just to show you this is exactly what Peter was saying. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Peter says, now this, beloved, verse 1, is the second letter that I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter says, I, I've said this stuff to you before. I've taught this stuff to you before, exactly why God does what he does. But I, I need to stir you up again. I need to tell you the same things again so that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter's saying, I've told you this again, so you don't forget. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who God is. Don't ever forget this truth. Knowing this, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers are going to come with their mocking. They're going to follow after their own desires, and they're going to say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Listen, you and I, we go out, we tell people the gospel, and people say, oh, that's good for you. That's a crutch for you. Oh, if you need that, that's okay. Where's the promise? We say Christ is returning. Really? When? When's he coming? I mean, because it seems like my whole lifetime, everything's been the same as it's been. I mean, I remember my own parents saying, we live in the last days. Your parents probably said the same thing. We're all saying it now. This surely has got to be the time when Christ returns. Listen, they were saying it back in the ancient times. Surely, where is the coming? Where is this promise? Where's the truth of the gospel you keep telling me about? What's Peter say? But when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. You know why sometimes that escapes people's notice? Because people deny the reality of it. A worldwide global flood? Come on. The evolutionists today tell us that didn't happen. The evolutionists today tell us the world is billions of years old. Well, listen, if you want a billion-year-old world, you're just increasing your indictment before God because God's been patient a whole lot longer than I'm telling you he's been patient. But the present heavens, verse 7, the present heavens and the earth by his word are being reserved for fire. 
They're being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In other words, God's being patient now. There's coming a day. It's being reserved for that day. That day's coming. Ungodly men will be judged. Judgment is coming. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. Sounds like Psalm 90. The Lord isn't slow about his promise. <laughs> don't consider God's patience. Listen, don't consider God's patience as God's approval. Don't consider God being slow as his approval of your sinfulness. God is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. See, God is not like us. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't act like us. God is not like us. He doesn't consider his promise as we count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any to perish, but all to come to repentance. See, don't count the fact that God has not judged yet, that Christ has not returned yet as his approval or, or, or the fact that it must not be true because you have missed something about God. Everything God does shows us something about him. And his patience is enduring because God is a God of mercy. A God of mercy. Why does God put up with this sinful world? Because he is rich in mercy and he is patient. All those whom he has prepared for glory from the undeserved lump of clay that don't deserve any glory. Choosing in his own sovereignty, choosing by his own omnipotent power and preparing to do it before the world ever was. Ephesians says, you were elect before the foundation of the world. When God chose you. It's not because he looked down the annals of time and had to figure out something based upon what you did. No. No, he just yanked you out of that lump of clay that he knew he would create, that he knew would fall, and chose to save you. And he will save and none will be lost. Why? Because God's patient. God will not lose any you realize there are some yet to be saved who have not yet been born. God can't destroy the world yet. They haven't been saved in time. Every day of patience with God is a day of salvation for all who will believe. And yet, for those who do not, it's another day of stored up wrath. Another day of stored up wrath. John 3.36, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. No one on the day of judgment will be able to justifiably say, I haven't had time to believe. No one. God has given you your whole life. He's given you every moment on this world to believe. Why don't you believe? He's given you a history of the world to look at, to see who he is, to see what he's done, to see his power and his wrath on display, to see his patient endurance with vessels of wrath. He's given you all of that. He has shown you who he is by what he has done all around you. And most importantly, he's shown you what he has done by looking at someone who's sitting right next to you who does believe. Because they didn't get there by themselves. They are a miracle of God. They are a miracle of his mercy and patience. It's unmistakable that they went from a sinner and God-hater to a God-lover, and it was not them. It was God who did it. Only the power of God can raise the dead. And the only power of God can take your spiritually dead soul and make it alive unto him. Only the power of God could do that. All of those who believe upon Jesus Christ, we are some of the greatest examples of God's patience and mercy with the wicked.
we can all echo the words of the Apostle Paul, we are the chief of sinners. We are the chief. If there's anything we should be clawing to the top of, it's the pile of sinfulness. We are the chief. And it took the power of God to save us. Do you realize that? It took the power of God to save you. It's not some flippant thing that man makes up. It's not some flippant thing that man can do himself. It takes the power of God to save you. All people have had ample time to believe. God is going to pronounce eternal condemnation one day, and it will be on a speechless humanity. Humanity will simply be speechless. They will have nothing to say. I didn't have time, really. God has given you 4,000 years of time. The world is without excuse. People will go to hell because they have rejected the only patient God there is. Listen, beloved, we don't need to be getting in debates about election and predestination and man's responsibility with fallen humanity. What we need to ask them is this. Why will you not believe the gospel? Why will you not believe the gospel? The problem with mankind is why do you continue in sin? Why do you continue in sin? That's their problem. It's not that they haven't heard. It's not that they haven't had enough time. It's not that it hasn't been explained clearly enough. It's not that, well, maybe God isn't. No, it's why do you continue in sin? God has been so patient with you. Why won't you believe? They're all without excuse. It is God's patience that causes us to repent. God's patience that causes us to repent. It's not how well you understand the words of a gospel presentation and you can share that without, with all kinds of clarity and people will get their understanding and they'll go, oh, now the light turns on. Listen, it had nothing to do with you. I always think about that when people say, well, gosh, I, 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 need, to, I need to be able to say things perfectly. Yes, we ought, to, we ought to strive to understand all there is in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can, we can give an answer for the the things that men are having questions about, but the reason, but all of those answers, as perfect as they might be, will save nobody. Why? It takes the power of God to save. And what draws somebody to repentance when they understand they have no hope without God and they run to God and they understand God is a patient God, that God has been so patient with them. Remember chapter 2, verse 4 of Romans? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? and forbearance, and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. People misinterpret that. They think, oh, it's the love of God. God is love, oh, all this kind of stuff. God is love, but it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. You don't need kindness unless you need mercy. And you don't need mercy unless you realize you're guilty. So why do you keep on sinning? God has offered you mercy and grace. God has extended his hand to patience and you still reject him. Why? Not because God failed you. Man is without excuse. But God, in his mercy, has prepared beforehand some for glory. And praise be to God that he calls us. He calls us from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe, and they come. You know why they come? Because it takes the power of God to save. God's call is effectual. If God calls you, you will come. You will come. And he calls them, not just from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, of which most of us are. And then Paul puts an exclamation point by quoting again from the Old Testament. Reminds me of Luke 16 where Jesus was saying, giving the 
parable of the rich man Lazarus. And Lazarus says, not Lazarus that he raised from the dead. This is a different Lazarus. Can't can I just go back and tell my brothers so that they don't come to this place of torment? Jesus says, no. Nobody can go back. They have the law and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And if they don't listen to them, not even if someone's raised from the dead will they listen. This is kind of what Paul is saying here. You have the law and the prophets. So Paul keeps quoting from the law and the prophets. And he says from the prophet Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Paul's saying, listen, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Listen to the prophet. Listen to what the prophet said. Listen to what I said through the prophet. It's not just about you Jews. It's about all that I've chosen from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation. They are my people. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Lo, the, the physical Israel, the physical heritage is a, is a host of people that is like the sand of the sea. It is the remnant that will be saved. Those whom I have prepared for glory, not because they deserved it, simply because I have mercy on whom I have mercy. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. Just as Isaiah foretold. Except the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us a posterity we would become like Sodom and resemble Gomorrah. We would be like the bottom of our barbecue. Dust. Burnt dust. Nothing. Worthless. Empty. That's what we would be like if God had not in His grace and mercy fashioned us for glory. You say, well, who is that? Who's fashioned for glory? I don't know. God didn't give us that privilege. He didn't give us the privilege to go around and see who's fashioned for glory. God just said, listen, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Tell people about me. You're Moses. You're Aaron. Go and tell Pharaoh that I'm God. Go and tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't believe in me, he's going to perish. Let me do the rest of it. That's my business. You do what I ask you to do. He who loves me will keep my commandments. Amen.